Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. And a good Wednesday morning to you. Um, Woody Williams passed away. Um, the last surviving Marine Medal of Honor winner from World War II. And I had the opportunity to meet Woody and interview him. And it was at the Marine Corps Marathon. I think it was in 2019 or 2018. I'd never been. And Woody has a foundation. And uh, he was there. And uh, I got to interview him. Then I got to hang out with him uh, when I saw General Neller. I went looking for him. And, uh, you know, he said, what are you doing? I said, I've never been. You know, so I've been interviewed viewing people. I thought I should be back here. He said, well, come with me. And he said, I start the, uh, he goes, I'm going to start the, the race. I said, all right. So, um, his wife, Darcy, who I've known forever, um, was with him. And so I tanked along, tanked along with them, having a good time. And, uh, again, I, I was a captain. He was a Lieutenant Colonel, my battalion commander at third light armored reconnaissance battalion out in 29 Palms. Third Light Harvard Infantry Battalion at the time. Um, so, I mean, I've known him forever. And um, so we go up to the uh, the reviewing stand, right, where they're going to start the race from. And uh, the honorary, um, I, I don't know what, what would you call him, Grand Marshal of the race, uh, is Woody Williams. And so I got a chance to meet him and interview him and then hang out with him a little bit and talk to him some more. So I'm going to play the interview that I did uh, with him right now. So without further ado, um, God bless him, lived a wonderful life, still has a foundation that you'll hear him talk about in the interview. And the interview's done in a, a display hall, obviously, where... A ton of vendors were, so there's some background noise, but it's a great interview with a great human being, um, a great Marine uh, who just uh, who gave a lot in his life to make the United States a better nation, to make his home state of West Virginia a better state. So without further ado, here's Woody Williams. Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara. And you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. I don't know even how to introduce my next guest because uh, um, he hails from uh, the pantheon of heroes in the Marine Corps. 
and uh, Woody Williams. I've seen videos about him. Uh, I've seen his him describe the fighting on Iwo Jima that I've read so much about and looked at maps about. And, uh, sir, on behalf of everybody who listens to All Moon Radio, I can't tell you what an honor it is to, to have you on this program. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. And <clears throat> any, anything I can contribute to enhance the Marine Corps and inform- get information out about our uh, foundation, our Medal of Honor foundation that we have, I'm always happy to participate. Well, let me tell you, I, I, they came up to me this morning and, and asked me, and they said, Hey, Mac, uh, uh, Woody Williams will be over here. I said, if I don't interview him, there's going to be hell to pay here. So, <laughs> so thank you very much for doing this. Um, first of all, I want to talk about you, and, okay. and, and then we'll talk about your foundation. Um, I've read so much about you, uh, but just uh, born and raised where? I was born and raised in West Virginia. How, do, how does the Marine Corps get on dark in your doorstep? How does how do you hear about it? Why? I mean, the Army was huge, Marine Corps not so huge. How did you find your way to Marine Corps? Well, uh, we lived way out in the country, right. and very seldom ever saw anybody in a uniform because we had no military installations anywhere anywhere near us. But uh, during the Depression years, we had. Uh, a couple individuals in the community, unrelated to me and unrelated to each other, joined the Marine Corps actually to make a living. Because in my area of growing up, if you didn't want to be a farmer and you didn't want to be a coal miner, there wasn't a whole lot more to do except just plain labor. So they joined the Marine Corps actually to make a living. And back in those days, they only had one enlistment period, and that was six years. When you went, you went for six, yeah. But <clears throat> the uh, armed forces, all of them, one time a year would give a person 30-day furlough, they called it. Right. And they would come home then for 30 days. But that was the only time they got home the whole year. But the Marine Corps required those coming home from the Marines to wear their dress blue uniforms. And I've been told... Which I was too young to realize that, but I've been told that they were using that as sort of an enticement because it was such an attractive uniform compared to that ugly army uniform they had. <laughs> that old piece of wool cloth. It's the truth. So the, the, the Marine uniform really is the thing that convinced me I ought to be a Marine. Had no desire or even thought about ever being in the military until Pearl Harbor was bombed. And at that time, I was in the Civilian Conservation Corps, which uh, contained about three-quarters of a million young boys around over the country that to give those youth, a we youth, something to do. And uh, I was in that... Uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. My so, so where did you go? What did you do? Well, <clears throat> I ended up in a little town of Whitehall, Montana. Whoa. I thought I'd never get back home again. It's too far away. But uh, Montana's beautiful, though. It yeah. is. But we, what we were doing there, and each uh, state had different projects in right. there. But in Montana, we were cutting pine posts out of the Rocky Mountain forest making them into posts, 
building fence around government reservations to keep cattle and sheep separated and uh, because the uh, sheep owners and the cattle owners right. were leasing government ground for pasturing. So we, that's what we were doing out there. And you were doing that when Pearl Harbor happened? That's right. And, yeah. then, and then what? You remembered those good-looking uniforms, and you said, I should probably do that. <laughs> Girls like that, that's for me. Well, yeah. Because and, and you would not be... That's a large group of people who joined the Marine Corps <laughs> saying, what are, who, who are those guys in that uniform? Yeah, you probably really don't want to do that. They're not the most reasonable people. No, I need to have that because that will help me get a girlfriend. You're exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. They come home and take our girlfriends away from them. Yeah, that's not happening. Not in that <laughs> uniform. So what, when, when do you enlist? I tried to enlist when I was 17. Uh, uh, when the uh, war started, the Civilian Conservation Corps was being discontinued. Right. We had a choice. We could, the uh, Corps, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was run by the Army. We had an officer, Army officer, who ran the base. We had a first sergeant, mess sergeant, Army clerks. And, but <clears throat> they offered us the opportunity. We could go straight into the Army from the, uh, the CCCs if we were over 18. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we had to have a parent consent. I'm only 17. So I couldn't go. I, don't, I wouldn't have gone anyway. But I still wanted to be that Marine. If I'm going to be in the service, I, I wanted to be a Marine. So I came home to join. But my mom, my dad was dead. My mom wouldn't sign my paper when I was 17, so I couldn't go. When I was 18, one month after my 18th birthday, I am now a man. I don't need mom's signature anymore. So I go to the Marines, and I want to go in the Marine Corps. I didn't want to fight a war. Didn't know anything about war. Never, never had a thought that I would have to be in a position of killing people. That just never entered my mind. I was entering the Marine Corps to protect my country and my freedom. That's all. Never knowing that I'd ever leave the United States of America. But I didn't know anything. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I went in the second time, or the, after my 18th birthday, I to enlist. I filled out the paper, but the Marine looked at me and said, I can't take you because you're too short. They had a height requirement of 5'8". And I couldn't meet it. I'm only 5'6". 5'8"? Yeah. Wow. That was the height requirement that time. And <clears throat> I have been told that... Historically, they tried to keep most of those 5'8 people, on average, so that they would look uniform. You know, you wouldn't start with tall people and go to the shorts. Everybody was basically the same height. Made you look, I guess, better. Um, so I went on back to the farm. Then, in early 1943... When I tried in 42, that's when they turned me down. Early 43, they took the high requirement off and lowered it. And that same recruiter, he kept those applications that he'd had to turn down. And he looked us up. And he looked me up. Came to the farm. Said, you still want to go in the Marine Corps? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I can take you now. So, off I go. So, would you go to recruit training? Well, I'm a Hollywood Marine and very proud of it. Because 
I tell these guys who went to Paris Island, we went to a tough Marine boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't start a conversation, does it? Oh, I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so you're there, um, MOSs. How do you get assigned an MOS, and where do you go after after per, after after, uh, after NCRD? Well, <clears throat> when I graduated boot camp, I became just a grunt, right. <laughs> you know, like most of us. And we first started training at a place called uh, Jack's Farm, J-A-Q-U-E-S. And then it was a tank farm. And we were learning how to work with tanks. How does the infantry work with the tank people? And this is 1943? 1943, okay. yeah. Right. And uh, uh, I graduated in August, and so this is in the fall of 43. Right. We trained there for a couple months, and then we went to Camp Pendleton, to start our conditioning marches. We were marching 10 miles a day almost every day. And uh, that was conditioning us for being getting ready to ship out to go overseas. And uh, To sit on a ship for a month or two and lose all that. <laughs> so it made sense. <laughs> for 19 days. Yeah, it made sense to somebody. That's all right. That's right, yeah. The, um, now, so you were in 0311, your rifleman? Yes, 0311. Okay. All right. And so you... Uh, you you head west. What 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 year? What month? Uh, in uh, November, I headed to uh, a place called New Caledonia. And now, now, are you part of a unit at this point? Oh yeah. You, so w- w- tell everybody what division you're about. It was a replacement unit. Okay. Just call it a replacement unit. Okay. And New Caledonia was a center where they brought in the Marines, and from there they would disperse them or reassigned them to the divisions that were already in the Pacific and to fill in the slots or positions where they had lost, wounded, and killed. So uh, once we got to New Caledonia, we were sent to Guadalcanal to join the 3rd Marine Division who was on Bougainville when we arrived on the canal. And we were headed for Bougainville. Okay. But uh, before we got there, before they could get us there, the Marines on Bougainville secured the island, and then they came to Guadalcanal, and that's where I joined the 3rd Marine Division. All right. So you joined them, finally meet them when? What uh, December 43. December 43. Yeah. So what do you do for the next year? Well, in early 44, we uh, received the flamethrower, for the first time. Nobody had ever seen one. And uh, flamethrowers came in in great big wooden crates. <clears throat> and they had to have a group to train of, to operate the flamethrowers. I was a barman. I was in a squad. And I was a barman in one section of the squad. We had a 13-man squad. Right. And <clears throat> three people to a squad. I mean, three people to a section. So I was a barman for that section. But when they started, the, or when they created the unit for the flamethrower, then they said, you, you, and you, that's your volunteer, you know. Voluntold? Voluntold. Good word. Uh, you're going to be in this special unit. So they did them. I thought you were supposed to be a big guy to have a flamethrower, right? I interviewed uh-huh. a, 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 a PSC on you, which you by the name of Cal Humphrey. He said, I put that flamethrower on. He said, I got rid of that thing in a hurry. He said, that thing, that thing was heavy. He well, said, it was 70 pounds. They needed big guys for that thing. Well, yeah, yeah but a short guy had a better chance of survival. 
ultimately at the end of the day. Yeah. That's exactly right. You know. So, tell us about tell us about um, fire in the flamethrower. What, what was that like? Well, in the very beginning, when the flamethrower was arrived, or when they arrived, it had a bag of phosphorus powder with it. And uh, it was to be mixed with gasoline, which right. formed a gel right. that we would put in the flamethrowers. And, of course, we had air pressure to force it out. Right. But it was like shooting a water hose. You only had one stream going out there. And you only had 72 seconds of fuel in those tanks. You had right. two and a half gallons of, time, of fuel. But if you opened it up and shot it, 72 seconds is all you got. So the gunnery sergeant that I had was an old China Marine, uh, one of the toughest guys I've ever been associated with. But uh, Gunny Hemphill, we tried that stuff, but you couldn't aim a flamethrower. You're firing from the waist and you can't aim, and by the time you wandered onto your target, you're already out of fuel. Right. So he didn't like that. Did it kick a lot? Was there a lot? I mean, when you when you un- unleashed it, was there a lot of pressure that, that moved the nozzle and made it inaccurate? Yeah, you'd sense? get an air burst that would push back right. on you. Okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't very, not much more of a kick than the than a M1 rifle. Yeah. Okay. Right. But it would kick back at you. But the problem was you couldn't get it on target. And he decided we're going to use some sort of fluid instead of this gel. And we practiced with the kerosene, uh, motor oil, and finally ended up with diesel fuel. Uh, because there are a lot of diesel vehicles, right. and uh, we mixed gasoline with diesel, and that the diesel gave it a body, and, <clears throat> and uh, the gas, of course, gave it the flame. But we're only using 82 octane gasoline, which we use in all the jeeps and trucks right, and that right, sort of right, thing. Right, right. Didn't burn very hot, right. you know. And he wasn't happy with that either. So one day he came in with a 55-gallon drum of, of uh, 130 octane airplane gasoline. Nobody ever knew where he got it. And he never did tell anybody how he got it. But we started mixing that with diesel fuel, and it really burned hot. I mean, 130 octane. So, <clears throat> finally, he convinced somebody that this is what we ought to be using. So then we could order it and... And shipped, and nobody had to steal anything or lie to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not that that would have slowed everything down, but... <clears throat> So that's, uh, that was how we came by with, with the uh, fluid that we used in the flamethrower fine. Interesting. What was the first operation? Was Iwo Jima the first operation you participated in? Guam was. Guam was. Now, when we hit, when we hit Guam, I had an assistant who was 6'6", six, six, talking about tall guys. Vernon yeah. Waters was my assistant. But I'm carrying the flamethrower. He's carrying everything else that I can't carry. My bedroll, my extra canteens, my extra grenades, my extra ammunition. He's your valet. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> we, had to, we had to wear a forty-five with the flamethrower. 
That was our side weapon. Okay. Good, good luck with that. Good luck, yeah. <laughs> I could throw a rock straighter and I could shoot that thing. But Isn't it funny when you see guys with pistols in, in, in the war? You're like, what do you use that for? <laughs> exactly. I, I actually shoot myself just in case I'm going to get yoked up here. Well, the first couple of days after when we hit the shore at Guam, we, I did carry the flamethrower. Mm -hmm. But we were trying to go up a hill called Nimitz Hill today. Wasn't that at that time, <laughs> but that's what it is today. And we were having a difficulty. In fact, it took us five days to get to the top of that thing because they had all the advantage. They're looking down on us, rolling hand grenades at us and throwing mortars at us and all that. So after the first couple of days, there were no, no caves. Guam is coral rock, rocks of it. Well, dig a hole would be impossible. So they didn't have caves. And the bunkers that they had, or pillboxes, we called them, were on the beach. Well, after those things were knocked out, then they didn't have any pillboxes because we're going to the jungle. Yeah. So, I never used a flamethrower on Guam at all. Oh, really? Never. No. If I'd have used it, I'd have set the whole jungle on fire, you know. It might not have been a bad idea. <laughs> it might not have been a bad idea. But... Uh, <clears throat> We just never had any any occasion to use it, and I go back to my very basic go three eleven. You know, <laughs> back, back on to the Marine Corps. That's exactly right. The um, and so you you all finished that uh, yeah. Guam, and after Guam, where do you guys go? Did, did you stay on Guam? We stayed on Guam. We put up tents, cleared an area, dug holes, and made heads and, and garbage pits and. Uh, and uh, all that sort of thing. All that good stuff that Marines do. You know, I, who, who's the commanding general? General Erskine, the, the, the CG at that time or not? Erskine. Erskine. General Erskine. Graves B. Erskine. Yeah. Right. Graves B. Erskine. Marine Division. And, uh, <clears throat> so you guys you I, I, stay I, there in train? Huh? You stay there in train, right? Yeah. Get ready. But in addition to training as flamethrower operators, they also trained us as demolition people. Ah. So that... We could blow up things as well as burn up things, so we had to know both things and uh, or both occupations. <clears throat> and uh, we first had just TNT, quarter-pound blocks of TNT, as our explosives. Uh, that was before C2 or C1 and C2 came out. Right. And. Uh, we would, in order to blow holes in the coral rock, we had to have crushed TNT. Because we couldn't dig it, so we'd drive a, uh, well, actually use a Jeep uh, axle, rear axle out of Jeeps, sharpened them on one end, and used the cog on the other end, and we'd take sledgehammers and beat that thing in the ground for a little few inches, and then take it out and just keep making holes, and then we would fill those holes with crushed TNT. I would sit at my bunk with a with a box of 48 <laughs> quarter-pound box of TNT under my bunk, and I had an empty uh, box that the uh, TNT had come in, built very strongly, right. and I'd use that axle, the cargo on it, and I'd sit there and just crush quarter pound blocks of TNT. People that weren't familiar with explosives, they'd walk in the tent and see me drop a ring. They'd take <laughs> off. <laughs> you're going to blow me up. Blow yourself out. Yeah. 
But that day, it wasn't dangerous. <clears throat> but then they came out with Composition C2, and it was like a putty. So you could do almost anything with it. Uh, previous to our, uh, we couldn't get water on Guam where we were. Up on the plateau, there was no water, and we couldn't dig wells. So we going to do what? Yeah. Know. Okay. <clears throat> Somebody got to bring you bottled water. <laughs> bottled water. <laughs> Who ever heard about it? You guys drink water. I know. Well, we all had tents. Right. And, uh, and it rained. And it rained a lot on Guam. And we had to do the foxhole just outside the tent by our bunk. Right. So that when Charlie came by, we called him Charlie, you know, he's flying an airplane, Japanese airplane. When he'd come by, we'd get a signal sign would go off and everybody had to go out of the bunk if they were in bunk mm-hmm. or if you weren't just go to your foxhole and get in your foxhole and <clears throat> sometimes it would rain and you'd roll out of your bunk you'd roll into the foxhole and you got two or three inches of water in there that don't make a difference you know life is more precious than you know right. but uh, <clears throat> I used that uh, crust TNT to blow holes for heads for garbage pits, oil pits, and that sort of thing. And then when Composition C2 came out, it made it a whole lot easier because we didn't have to crush right. the TNT right, 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 right. We could just stick it down in there. Right. You know? And uh, we had cut tops out of 55-gallon drums. And uh, first we were doing a hammer and chisel all the way around to cut the top out of the thing so we could catch water rolling off of the tents on each corner. That's what we used to bathe in. That's what we used to wash our clothes in. Yeah, that, that was rainwater. And that was the only water we had. And that was what you drank as well. That's right. Exactly right. So uh, that's how we survived with water. Now, they would bring water buffaloes in for the chow hall. And they had to go to the beach to get that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, haul it in. So mm-hmm. we needed, needed more water than the buffaloes could furnish. That's why we put those uh, 55-gallon drums almost every tent, right at the corner of all four corners. And we just had bookies of water because it rained a lot on Guam. Yeah. So we stayed there and trained. And then we didn't know, we knew we were going to go someplace. We didn't know where. Mm-hmm. But finally, in early February, 45, you know, saddle up, we're leaving. Didn't know where. Everybody went aboard ship. And uh, when we got to sea, then they brought out a board of some kind that showed the outline of Iwo Jima. Now, Guam was something like 19 miles from one coastline to the other coastline. They brought this thing out and showed that it was only two and a half miles from one coastline to the other, five miles from one end of it to the other end of it. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at that, and they're briefing us, you know, that we're going to be a reserve division to the fourth and fifth division. We'll probably be gone no more than five days. Probably never get off ship because they didn't think they would ever need us, another division. 
fourth and fifth is going to hit first, and it's only, as I said, two and a half by five mile island, and it was so small compared to Guam, nobody could figure out, at least we peons could never figure out why we were taking that little piece of rock. I mean, it didn't make any sense, really. But eventually we learned, of course, that the airfield. That's what we got to have because we're losing B-29s flying from Tinian and Guam and Saipan to Japan. No way of rescuing them if they have to hit. So this was only 600 miles from Japan and our fighters could stay there and escort the 29s to Japan and back. That was the purpose of taking the owl. Yeah. All right, now let me stop you there. Will you come? Will, will you agree to come back on by phone and talk about the fighting on Iwo Jima? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Right, I'm going to hold your son to that. Okay. Because I don't want to monopolize too much of your time today, and I know you have other things to do, and I want to talk about the marathon. Okay. Uh, my guest, the Marine Corps legend. Medal of Honor recipient, Woody Wood. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. I can't tell you what a thrill it is for him. Um, and, um, and, and, but I do want you to come on because I'd love to do these longer interviews and talk about things like water on Guam. I don't know that too many Marines have heard that story. Probably not. You know, and, and we talk about improvise, adapt, and overcome. And you lived it in, in Guam, crushing TNT. <laughs> the, um, uh, talk to me about this event. Uh, the Marine Corps Marathon. You're one of the Grand Marshals here. Um, you and the Commandant are going to start races. Um, uh, talk to me about uh, why you wanted to be a part of this. Well, I've never had an opportunity. I've never been invited before. Uh-huh. The first time I've ever been invited to take part in it. Of course, I've heard about and read about the, the marathon. I'm not a marathon runner or, or I don't go to, go to marathon to watch other people run. It's just something I've never had time or never had the desire to do. But this, this marathon is so widely known all over the world. When you have people come from foreign countries running this thing, that says something about it, you know. So uh, I'm very pleased that I got the invitation and I, now I see something that you have to see to believe, that all these thousands of people come to run, that's torture. <laughs> <laughs> they come to torture themselves. Exactly. That's a little difficult for me to understand. Yeah, exactly. If they told us we were walking 26 miles, we'd say, what? <laughs> right? And these people are going to run it. But to follow up on a point you made, you walk into this room and you can feel it. Yeah. Absolutely. There is a spirit running around here that you would not get anywhere else. No, and it's unique because of the presence of Marines all over the place and all these organizations like the Semper Fi Fund, right? And and I met a woman who started uh, an organization called Medals of Honor, and they run for uh, warriors that have been killed. And uh, they, they, were, they run with their rank, uh, their name, their service, and the date they were killed. They send that, that placard, along with the medal they earn in the, the race, to the family. Wow. She's a, her son enlisted in the Marine when uh, he was 17, and he's still alive. But she started doing this. She said the response was so overwhelming, this thing has just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you run into these stories 
all all over the place. Okay. It's just, just incredible. So now, what's your what's your official role? What are you going to actually do? Are you gonna? They're gonna have you fire a flamethrower to start the race? <laughs> are they going to let you shoot an artillery piece? What exactly? Well, I was told that I was going to fire the pistol to start the race. Yes. Now, somebody mentioned to me a little while ago, Rick or somebody, that the commandant had said that he wants to he wants to fire the pistol. So the commandant big timed you. Well, that's was the word I got. Whoa. Now that's not official, but I haven't heard that. So, uh, but Rick said, "Well, we'll we'll still fire you, maybe for the kids or something." They have two races here, don't they? Right, 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 right. Maybe for the kids or something. But they have, but, they have a, and then they have one for people that hand crank. They're, they're uh, yeah, right. That they have that race too. Okay. And uh, so, uh, so maybe you'll get the fire. You yeah. tell them, look, I came to shoot something. <laughs> Somebody let me shoot something. Neller, you better let me shoot something. I'm gonna lock you up. Well, I've done that before for uh, 5K runs and that sort of thing. So, I've, I've had that opportunity to do that, but nothing like. What this one is? Thirty thousand people, unbelievable. It takes a half an hour just to go by the starting line. <laughs> you believe that? No, I can't. Yeah, I, I can't. can't. I'm not. I'm not one of these marathon people. Tell me about your foundation. I had a chance to meet your son. Your, your son? He's a good-looking kid. Great, uh, great grandson. I mean, not a great. Just a. He's a he's great a guy, great but it, but he is just a grandson. Great. The oldest grandson. The um. So tell me about your foundation. Well, we started the foundation in 2010. And we call it the Medal of Honor, um, Herschel Woody Williams Medal of Honor Foundation. And we named that uh, not only to pay uh, uh, tribute to those Medal of Honor recipients, both living and deceased, but we did it primarily to recognize and pay honor and tribute to the families, the loved ones, of those who sacrificed their life in the armed forces. Over the years... Yes, so tell me what you guys do. Okay. Over the years, Gold Star mothers have been reasonably well recognized. There are some communities that have already uh, erected some... some... uh, tribute to Gold Star Mothers, but nobody in all my experience until I got involved in this foundation, no one had ever mentioned Gold Star Dad. The term was never used, never no, expressed. No, no. So <clears throat> I ran into a Gold Star Dad, or he actually came to me, uh, who had lost a son in Afghanistan. And he said that almost the same thing, that dads cry too. You know, his his wife had already predeceased the the sacrifice of the son. So who got the word? Dad did. They brought the word to him. He was the only one. And we just had never done anything like that. And the country as a whole, even with all the monuments and whatever we've got in Washington, D.C., there is not one thing that pays tribute to the families who have sacrificed one of their own for our country and our freedom. I just couldn't understand that. Why have we not done that? 
because they suffered, they gave more than I did. They gave more than any of us did who got home. And we had never done anything to honor and pay tribute to those people. So on our capital grounds in West Virginia, we've got a veterans memorial paying tribute to those that were sacrificed. And there's 11,424 names in that memorial inscribed in granite. And every one of those individuals to have their name on that memorial had to sacrifice their life at the hands of an enemy. That's what the legislature said. If he had sacrificed his life some other way, like a plane crash or a auto crash or a heart attack or a training accident, they weren't on that memorial because they were not killed at the hands of an enemy. That has been corrected, but <clears throat> no one had ever done anything in the country to honor the families, the Gold Star families, the relatives of these individuals who sacrificed their life. And the, most of us knew when we signed that document that says, I am enlisting, most of us knew there is a possibility I'll never get back home again. But that's real. Right. Yeah. Right. But why haven't we done something? Why hadn't we done something for the families, the loved ones who everybody related to that individual grieves because they lost a they lost a relative. Right. Okay. So I decided we had to do something in West Virginia and I'm this is awful hard for me to admit that I'm not a selfish person, but we were doing it basically for a selfish reason to honor our own in West Virginia. So I was working with a committee organizing a, a, a veteran cemetery. And uh, I mentioned that to this committee. And I said, we need to do something in this cemetery to honor those people on the families of those on that memorial. And they said, well, that's, that's a great idea. You design it, and let's see if we can get it going. So I designed it, brought it back to the committee. They approved it. So we constructed the very first one ever in the United States of America in a veteran cemetery in West Virginia to honor the families, the total relationship to that individual. And we thought we were done. We're finished. We've done what we were supposed to do. Let the others do whatever they want to do. If they don't want to do anything, okay. But it got on the Internet, and the second one, the second one that came about was the son who lost his father in Vietnam. And he's a ghost star son. And he said, this is Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. He said, we have got to have one of these in Valley Forge. So you organize the committee, raise money, and they did it. That was number two. Number three was Tampa, Florida. A, a Jefferson School for Boys up to high school. There were 250 boys in that school. All boys' school. No girls. Everybody boys. One of them saw it on the Internet, went to the guy in charge, uh, their instructor, and said, we'd like to put one of these on the grounds of this 
prayer school. And he said, well, I'm sure we can do that, but we don't have any money for it. And whoever this young man was said, well, we'll raise the money. So they took on the project. took them two years. They washed cars, mowed lawns, sold lemonade. Uh, Cookies, I'm sure, everything. <laughs> anything. Anything. To raise money. Motor oil. Sold T-shirts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Crushed they raised six, crushed dynamite? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but they raised $60,000. Holy smoke. And that was number three constructed in the country. And from there, it just continued to grow. Today, we have 44 communities all over this country, from California to New York to Florida to Texas and West Virginia. We've got five communities that have already put up one of these memorials. Number six is on the way. Number seven is going to be on our capital grounds right near that memorial will have all those names on it of those who made that sacrifice. We've never done it before in our history. And now the communities are realizing these folks gave so much more than any of us forever. We must, we must pay honor and tribute to that. You know, so how do people support uh, what you, so your foundation supports all these different efforts. How do people, if people go to your, the, the website of the foundation, can they donate money there? Oh, absolutely. We're looking for those. You are. <laughs> <laughs> Let me lay this thing down a minute so I can find a card. All right. You just gave me one, and I have one. Is that that card? That's John Wayne. He gave me... <laughs> Uh, you see our foundation at the bottom. Okay. Anybody can contact that foundation, and we will send them uh, information about the monuments, all the schematics that they would need to uh, to do it. The only thing we can't send them is money. They've got to raise their own money. We don't have that. We don't have that. So anybody who's interested in 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 erecting a monument that honors Gold Star families, yeah. All right, I'm going to give you a website, www.hww, which are my initials, his initials, all right, mohf.org. Go to that, and you're going to find everything you need. And I'll, and I'll, I'll put this up on, on our website, And uh, but they're on Twitter, they're on uh, Facebook. So if you, just, if you just do a search on, if you Google Woody Williams Foundation, you're going to find a whole bunch of links that are going to take you to his foundation. So I'll tell you what, that is, uh, all of us who've gone to war, you know, uh, you come home and you see families and, and you know, the, the look in, in a parent's eyes is, is, and there's nothing you can do to ease their burden. No, no. And it'll be there their lifetime. Right. I, present, I presented two flags at funerals in my life, uh, both to the same mother. And very, just, very emotional. Oh, just, um, just horrible to think it could happen once is terrible. To think it could happen twice is just heartbreaking. And they're great people, and uh, and we need we need more of these. We need more of these. Um, so you're going to shoot some kind of weapon this weekend. We're not sure which way you're going to start it, because <laughs> right. Nell are big time, yeah. So uh, he was my I'm his favorite company commander. 
No kidding. Yeah, wow. one, yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Miller. Oh, yeah, how about that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're battle buddies. We we were in Iraq together. So, uh, no, he's a good friend of mine, and he's been on the program a number of times. And uh, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. It has been an absolute treat for me to come on, and you promised me you're going to come back on and talk about Iwo Jima because I just got a map in the mail the other day from a former uh, commanding officer of the 11th Marine Regiment. He was given the map by Marines who were on Okinawa during uh, during the Iraq War, and they went through the uh, archives of the 3rd Marine Division, and they annotated this map. And he heard me talking about how much I've read about Iwo Jima, how much I've watched, what a fan I am, and he sent me the map. But it was all folded up and kind of crinkled. So, because I love maps, I got my iron out. It is laminated, and I ironed it. And he heard me talk about it. He goes, Mac, only a geek would do something like that. He said, you are, you must be an Iwo Jima geek. I said, no, you know, it was such a unique battle, right? You know, it, you know 60,000 combatants, no prisoners taken, them above, them below ground, you guys above ground. And I've just been fascinated by it. And I've never been to the island. I know a lot of people that have. I've never been there. But I would love to have you come back and, and, and talk about it in detail because, you know, so you are a, uh, you are a hero of the Marine Corps. Uh, a lot of us have grown up uh, watching you on videotape, and now we, we can see you on YouTube. You're all over YouTube, and then I've, and I've watched a whole bunch of those things. So, an absolute honor for you to come and talk to us, sir. And thank you very much. Thank you. Very, and I'll tell you what, as, as great as your achievement um, with your mates from the 3rd Marine Division is, um, your foundation is just as great. Because you touch the lives of people, families that have lost everything, and have told them, we, we haven't forgotten about you, we love you, 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 we care about you, we'll never forget, and we want the community to recognize that. And, and we all know how important that is. So congratulations on this. Thank you. One of the things that I hear very, very often as we dedicate these memorials is the expression, now, my loved one, will never be forgotten. That's awesome. Amen? No, no, it's such a... Because they, they weren't just pictures. They were real people. And to those of us who knew them, to those of us who yelled at them when they farted and made, in, in our tents and things like that, uh, their loss is, is heartbreaking and crushing. How long did you stay in the Marine Corps? I, I got 20 years in... <clears throat> Uh, when I came out of World War II, the reserve units came into play about 10 years after I got out. So I got involved in the reserve programs and, and uh, went up through the ranks and finally retired as CWO4. So uh, I've enjoyed my life tremendously. Well, it's been a rich one and I'm so proud that, that you're one of us. Thank one you. of the few, the proud, the Marines. So Amen. Thank you very much, sir. The one and only Woody Williams. What an honor. All right, we're going to take a break. Everybody I met said the same thing about him. What a wonderful, wonderful guy that he was. And my experience with him was no different. Um, he's just exceedingly gracious with me, um, anxious to discuss his foundation and and the work that they were doing across the country 
and just a just a nice man, true to his West Virginia roots, and extremely proud American, and an extremely proud Marine, and and an extremely humble Medal of Honor recipient. So, uh, as is our custom, right? Um, these honors are dedicated to Woody Williams who spent uh, an entire lifetime as a Marine, retired as a Marine, and then went on um, to be a great ambassador um, for the best things about the country and certainly about what it is to be a Marine. So this is dedicated to him. Fair winds and following seas, sir.
I'm Mike McNamara on Solomon Radio. And I was lucky enough to meet that guy and spend some time with him. And uh, he's not a big guy. And you think about his courage on that island with that flamethrower, that it was that it was a shit magnet. The Japanese saw those tanks, right? They knew what they were, obviously. And they were priority targets of them. And that guy survived it after all the work that he did. Uh, came home and lived a wonderful life. And he's a great example to all of us about what it is to do your duty as as an American and then fight the rest of your life to live a good life. And he's a great example for all of us. And you can only imagine, I mean, what he saw. And yet, you know, as humble as humble could be, as nice as nice could be, and a great example of what it is to come home and be a a veteran that contributes to your community in spite of everything you carry on inside of you. And again, you can only imagine what he carried inside of him. When you are burning human beings to death with a flamethrower, I imagine, right, over a few drinks, he could tell you some stories. Yet, in his presence, you would know none of it. He's just a wonderful, lovely person. So, um, my honor to have been able to spend some time with uh, Woody Williams. On that note, I'm Mike McNamara of the Salt Marine Radio. Have a great day. I will see you as events dictate as I go back into my writing cave. So, uh, on this sad note, but great note, celebrating a great life. Um, have a great day. <laughs>